and we got to cover a lot of stuff tonight, although I'm going to be very relaxed, because last, on Sunday, was last Sunday. <laughs> um, I finished with this quote, and it's one paragraph, so bear with me. Think about it as I'm talking, because it's going to be the theme for the evening. Because they are not understood, the rites of the sacraments often seem to the faithful to be artificial, and sometimes even shocking. It is only by discovering their meaning that the value of these rites will once more be appreciated. For this symbolism is not subject to the whims of each interpreter. It, con it constitutes a common tradition going back to the apostolic age. And what is striking about this tradition is its biblical character. It is then the meaning and origin of this biblical symbolism that we must first make clear. Here the recent studies on the history of liturgical origins are of service to us, for they have established that we must look to the liturgy of Judaism. We must therefore ask ourselves the question, what significance did, these, did the signs used in the Jewish liturgy hold for the Jews of the time of Christ and for Christ himself? It is also quite evident that the mentality of the Jews and of Christ was formed by the Old Testament. Consequently, it is in studying the significance of the Old Testament, of the different elements used in the sacraments, that we have the best method to discovering their significance for Christ and for the apostles. That was kind of long. Um, what's he saying? <coughs> Generally. Salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. No, come on. Some of the Jewish methods. Not only methods, you're right. Okay. We have to look to Jewish traditions to find the origin of our sacraments so that they are more understandable and not just a whim. Okay, and, and what about the sacraments? Not just not just that we're finding the origin of the of the of the well, how can I say this? The meaning. It's not just the, the meaning of what's going on in the sacraments, but something even more a little superficial that we have to start at. It's in his first sentence. Yeah, the sign. Okay, that there's because they are not understood, the rites of the sacraments often seem faithful to be artificial and sometimes even shocking. Well, absolute signs. Yeah. So what kind of what do you mean shocking? Like what? Oh, that baby. Taking a baby and dunking underwater, which unfortunately we don't see very often in the West, but it still happens sometimes. And what is going on here? Because what happens is when we dislocate the sacraments or the feasts that we're celebrating, because all the feasts are tied to the sacraments, uh, or the sacraments are tied to certain feasts. Because we dislocate them from their Old Testament background, we end up, unfortunately, creating a theology based upon what we're seeing today through our eyes, through our 2007 American vision. And although the theology we create might be helpful in some areas, ultimately, if it's dislocated from the Old Testament, it's dislocated from the ancient origin and meaning of the sacrament itself. Okay, so by discovering what these signs, their roots in the Old Testament, we'll learn what we're seeing today in the sacrament. Okay, I did, what we're going to do today is quickly go over the three main 
feasts of the Jews in their fulfillment in Christ. Okay? And the three feasts are, well, you can read them up there. <laughs> Passovers. And tabernacles or booths, the same thing. Okay, the Feast of Tabernacles. Open up to um, Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. You need another Bible? You guys yeah. want, Mon, can we get a couple more Bibles? Who needs a Bible? I won't scold you today because it's almost Okay. Alright, Exodus 23. Melanie, verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Oh, come on, Melanie. What more than that? How much do you want me to read? Well, I'll just keep reading. I'll tell you what I'm sorry. Verse 17. Happening during the same time. So the name is interchangeable, really. Passover and unleavened bread. Okay, keep going. Okay. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. Okay, what's that feast? Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest. Okay, so or and these names are very much. There's lots of different names given. We can talk about that. But okay, keep going. Okay, you shall keep the feast of in gathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruits of your labor. Okay. Or three times. Fine. So three times a year, the Jewish men are to go to Jerusalem, up to the temple, for these feasts, for these three feasts. And there's different names given, right? There you see unleavened bread, which could be Passover, right? The Feast of Harvest, which really could be the Feast of the Wheat Harvest, or of the First Gathering, or the First Harvest, Okay, but the feast of Passover and unleavened bread also is called in some, sometimes the feast of first fruits because it was at the feast of unleavened bread that they took the first sheaf or we say a gather a clump whatever it is a handful of the wheat the very first and brought it up to the temple and the priest waved it before the Lord on the altar. Offering him the first fruits. So these they're interchangeable, but in their foundation, they're all connected with the harvest. Okay, they all have a natural level. Okay, and that's actually the first thing I wanted to fill in here was that Passover for it. Well, did I finish saying okay, fine. Passover. Um, what's taking place on a natural level? What's it commemorating? Yeah, that's on a Jewish level. For all of these feasts, there's going to be three levels. A natural level, okay, a Jewish interpretation or a Jewish application, and a Christian application. It's important because the natural level is not just kind of some pagan level, which some, unfortunate, some scholars say. Say, well, the Jews are just taking from the pagan cultures. 
There's something true of that to this degree. This certain pagan cultures understood the cycle of nature. But that cycle of nature ultimately is rooted in the creation of God. Okay? So we can say on the natural level, this was the feast of, uh, what did you call it? First, I'm just lasting. First fruits. Okay? Um, Pentecost is the wheat harvest. And the Feast of Booths, anybody know? Hmm? Yeah, it's the fruit harvest. The fruit harvest. The fruit harvest, but again, it's the, what it is, is it's the final harvest of the year. It's in the seventh month. Okay? When does Passover take place? What time of year? In the spring. So what other aspects besides that first harvesting of the wheat, what other aspects do you think the Jews would look back to? It, on a natural order. Plant seeds. What was I heard in the back? Creation. Creation. Okay, looking back to creation, because in the spring, in a sense, the world is recreated or renewed again. Okay, so for the Jews, the feast of Passover, in its natural background, before the Exodus, okay, had all of this imagery coming into it. That they understood. Okay? Turn to Exodus chapter 12. It's the first time we really run into um, a description of Passover itself. Exodus chapter 12. I was talking to somebody, she's not here tonight, but she says, I, I hate it when you call on people to read because I get scared and I don't want to read and I get nervous. Does anybody get nervous because I call on different people to read? Okay, fine. All right, Jennifer, chapter 12, verse 1, and keep going. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they shall take every man a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then a man and his neighbor next to his house shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs in the evening. Then they shall put then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and of the lentil and the lentil of the houses in which they eat them. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat of any do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it your loins girded, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall fall upon you to destroy you. 
smite the land of Egypt. Okay, so we're all pretty familiar with that with that text. Let's consider that in a second. Well, first, the Jewish is just, you could just say, I don't want to say Passover, what do you want to call this? That points to the Jews, the Exodus. Okay, so there's two backgrounds we have working with. First of all, in order for us to understand its fulfillment, we said we have to understand the signs. Okay? On a natural level, according to its natural background, there's certain elements or certain signs which come forth, images in the mind of Israel, okay, that are associated with, with Passover. And what are those? If we're tied to creation, what are the images of creation? What are some of those images of the creation account in Genesis? The rivers, the garden, the forest. Okay, a garden. Okay, fine. What else? What, somebody said water? What about water? Water and light. Rivers. Okay, alright. I'm sorry, I was thinking Exodus just then. Yeah, rivers, light. Okay, so we got actually waters. I could just, we just say waters. And really within creation itself, we're talking about the waters parting, right? So the parting of the waters. You guys can't read my handwriting, so why am I writing up there? Um, what else? What man and what man, man and woman? Okay, man and woman in the image of God, right? Man and woman. But the key is that they're in the image of God. What else? Animals. Animals, okay. Trees. Trees. Alright, a garden. Okay, fine. So we've got all this imagery coming in to Passover as a natural background. Those images are important because when we talk about the fulfillment in Christ, we're going to have to have that readily available for us so that we can take these images and apply them properly. Okay? Let me read you um, a quote from Eusebius. He says, the time, he says, the time was that very one, talking about time of Passover, the time was that very one which appeared at the moment of the first creation of the world. When the earth was brought, when the earth brought forth shoots, and the stars appeared, it is at this time that the Lord of the whole world celebrated the mystery of His own feast, and like a great star appeared to light up the whole world with the rays of religion, and thus bring back the anniversary of the cosmos. And what's He talking about? The Lord's Passover. Yeah, so we're talking about the whole, not only the passion of the Lord, but also His resurrection as He comes forth as a light into the world. So there's all sorts of images that Eusebius is looking back to, Eusebius being very much connected with Jewish thought, and he's drawing from them. Let me give you an example. Christ rises from the dead on what day of the week? On Sunday, which is what number? The first day of the week. Looking back to creation... What comes forth from God on the first day of the week? Light. Light. And it's all done within the Passover cycle, which is done within memory of springtime and creation. Okay? When it says we start thinking about what the church does on the night of Passover, on Easter, on Pascha, in the church. Okay? Eusebius continues about the Jewish Passover. Well, let's talk about that for a second. We'll read his quote. Uh, regarding the Exodus, what images do we have? 
What's that? Water again. What water? The part of the, the Red Sea. The part of the Red Sea. Now, does anything strike you all of a sudden between creation and... Remember the parting of the waters at creation, mm -hmm. and now a parting of the waters of the Red Sea. In fact, who was it that wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses is the one that walked through the waters which God parted. And then he goes and writes about the creation in terms of his own experience of the parting of the Red Sea. Okay? What else? So, I do have to write this up. Fine. Okay. What else? Can you talk about the light that they fought, or the pillar of fire that they fought? All right, the pillar of fire. What are you thinking of? I, I, I would think it's the light, but I don't know. Well, what are you thinking of in terms of, of the Christian application of it? The light. Oh, the light of Christ. The light of Christ. The light which we light every Easter. Okay? But not just in terms of just the Passover, but what? Again, that light shining forth in creation. Okay? What else? The manna. The desert. All right, the manna. Yeah. The desert. What else? Desert. Decalogues. What's that? Decalogues. All right, the, well, the law is going to be given soon. We're going to talk about that. But just in terms of the Passover itself. Lamb. All right, a lamb. Let me keep writing. Fine, a lamb. The land of Canaan that they're going to be given. Okay, this looking forward to the land that's coming to them. Okay, what else? Lamb. What about the, and the lamb of God? Right. So all these images coming in. What about the, any negative images coming in from Passover? Oh, yeah, the death of the firstborn and ultimately the death of Pharaoh, right? And the Egyptians being drowned in the Red Sea that Israel has just come across, right? So the waters become a place of death and also a place of salvation, okay? Let me keep reading you Eusebius. He says, it is, at the, it is at the time of this feast of the Egyptians, friends of the demons, they didn't pull around the words back then. <laughs> Friends of the demons found their ruin, and the Jews, in celebrating the feast of God, their liberation. All these things find their fulfillment in the feast of salvation. It is he, the Christ, who is the Lamb, whose body was stretched out. But it was he also, the Son of Justice, S-U-N, whose divine springtime and salvation salvation-bearing change caused the life of men to pass from evil to good. Okay? So we have all of those images coming into us. I want to read you one other quote from a church father. Not as well known. Gaudentius of the Breccia, I think? Brescia? Breccia, I think. The Lord Jesus decreed that the blessed feast of the Pasch, or Passover, should be celebrated at a suitable time, after the fog of autumn, after the sadness of winter, and before the heat of summer. For indeed Christ, the Son of Justice, was to scatter the darkness of Judaism and the ice of paganism before the heat of the future judgment by the peaceful light of his resurrection. You see, Gaudentius here bringing cre the created order and the Jewish order kind of together, but he, then he applies what we would normally apply to the Egyptians, he applies to the Jews. Okay? 
Um, the darkness of Judaism, the ice of paganism before the heat of the future judgment by the peaceful light of its resurrection, and bring back to the peaceful state of their origin all the things which had been covered by obscurity by the prince of darkness. It is indeed in the springtime that God created the world, and indeed in the, it was in the month of March that God said to Moses, the month, This month shall be for you the first of months of the year. Now the truthful God would not have called this the first month if it had not been such in fact. This is why the Son of God raised up the fallen world by his own resurrection at the very time in which he first created it out of nothing, so that all things might be refashioned in him. Okay? So we see that application coming in and applied to Christ all these images, not only from the created order, but also from the Passover of the Jews. Okay? We want to push a little bit further, though, because it's not just a matter of, isn't it nice that John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God? Isn't it nice that we light a candle in the church, which is kind of like the fire pillar? Isn't it nice that we have all these parallels, these applications? Those are fine, but it doesn't end there. Okay, we had talked about the fulfillment in Christ and what it really means. What does it mean that, we that, the, that all of the Jewish order is fulfilled in Christ? What do we mean by that? We talked about it for two hours already. Brought to perfection, which is? It's right order. It's right order, which is? What is the perfection of, of man? Yeah, coming into communion with God. And when man comes into communion with God, what does he receive? Yeah, grace or the life of God himself. He becomes a sharer in the divine nature. Cardinal Ratzinger, following upon some of that stuff we talked about sacrifice last time. It says, if sacrifice in its essence is simply a returning to love and therefore divinization, worship now in our post-fallen state has a new aspect, the healing of wounded freedom, atonement, purification, deliverance from estrangement. The essence of worship, of sacrifice, remains unchanged, but now it assumes the aspect of healing, the loving transformation of broken freedom. Worship is directed to the other in himself, to his all-sufficiency. But now it refers itself to the, one, to the other who alone can extricate me from the knot that I myself cannot untie. Redemption now needs a redeemer. He it is who makes his way to us and takes the sheep onto his shoulders. That is, he assumes human nature. And as the God-man, he carries man, the creature, home to God. And so the ready-to-us, we talked about the exitus and the ready-to-us, the, the going forth from God in creation and the return, which is broken by Adam's uh, disobedience. And so the ready-to-us becomes possible. But now sacrifice takes the form of the cross of Christ, of love that in dying makes a gift of itself. Such sacrifice has nothing to do with disruption. It is an act of new creation, the restoration of creation to its true identity. All worship, here's the key sentence, all worship is now a participation in the Passover of Christ, in his passing over from death to life. What is the Passover of Christ? 
What is the fulfillment? It is that he takes us from our state of exile and brings us back to that which God intended for man in the beginning. That which we've talked about is the fulfillment of all things. He brings mankind in himself back into communion with God. He raises our human nature from the dead. And now it becomes possible for man to live forever in the presence of God. Not only possible, it takes place in Christ. Okay? That's the fulfillment of the Passover. Because for the Jews, the Passover was not simply a matter of leaving Egypt, of being freed from physical slavery, but what more? What other aspect did it have? <laughs> What's that? But they brought into their own. They become God's people the way he intended them to be his people. And in that, leaving behind what aspect or what's, what attachment? <coughs> yeah, but not just a physical slavery, but also a spiritual slavery. A, yeah, a, a spiritual bondage to the false gods of Egypt. So already in Israel, there was a spiritual application to the Passover, being brought from the slavery and death in Egypt to life in the presence of God. And now Christ takes our humanity and truly passes it over from death to life in the resurrection. Okay? But those symbols, like I said, they matter a whole lot. Because as that Passover is applied to our own lives... It's not randomly applied or in a, in say, a non-material way. We are sensate beings. And so when the church looks back to say, how is it that man is going to be incorporated into the Passover of Christ? Where is she going to look? Where is she going to look? To the Old Testament. To look at the Passovers of the Old Testament and the meaning of those Passovers and taking the symbols from them, she will apply them to what she does today. Okay? Easter primarily is for who? It's for each of us, but primarily for what type of person? In what relationship to the church? The whole of the Lenten, the whole of the Lenten cycle is for one type of person. Not just, yeah, it's repentance, but it's designed for the catechumen, the one who is to enter into the kingdom of God. The whole of Lent is for that. When we're fasting for our 40 days, we're fasting for those that are going to be received into the church. Okay? They are making their exodus out of Egypt toward the promised land, which is the kingdom to come, which is the church. And so the church takes all the images from the Old Testament, both from the created order and from the order of the Jewish Passover, the Jewish Exodus, and applies them then to the catechumen. And we watch and we see the mysteries before us. Unfortunately, what do we do? We don't look back to the Old Testament. We say, well, isn't that nice that they're lighting a candle? And isn't that nice that they're putting the person under water? Well, why are they putting the person through water? Why do we baptize in that way? Why do they enter the Passover of Christ or the life of Christ in that way? Why? Tell me, guys. Come on. Because it's a remembrance of going through the Red Sea. Yeah. It's a remembrance of going through the Red Sea. What else is it a remembrance of? Yeah, but there's a good example of a situation where we're, we're taking a theology which has developed a very true theology 
But the actions we're doing are telling us about a perspective of the Jews. For Christ and the apostles, taking a person through the waters of baptism didn't so much speak of a removal of original sin as much as it spoke of a removal of slavery to Egypt and an entrance into paradise. What else? Looking way back to creation. Yeah, and what about creation? The parting of the waters and the dry land coming forth and man being created from that that earth. Okay, so these two orders. Cardinal Danielou says, the sacraments carry on in our midst the memory, the great works of God in the old and new, in the Old Testament new. For example, the flood, the passion, and baptism show us the same divine activity as carried out in three different era of sacred history. You remember we started and I said, we always look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we divide them. We make them two separate issues altogether. But in reality, it is the same mystery that God is calling us into. But what is different is the state of man in relationship to God. Okay? He goes on and says the sacraments were thought of as the essential events of Christian existence and of existence itself as being the prolongation of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. In other words, when we are being baptized, we're not being baptized like Jesus was baptized. St. Paul says we are being baptized into Christ's baptism. We are walking through the Red Sea when we go through the baptismal font. We are coming forth from the waters of the flood of Noah onto dry ground to worship God again. We are coming forth from the waters of creation to stand in the paradise of God again. And when man came forth from those waters and stood in paradise, what was presented before him? But the tree of life, from which he may eat and live forever. When the Israelites sacrificed the lamb of Passover, they also ate unleavened bread for their journey. In fact, they not only sacrificed the lamb, what else did they have to do with it? What else did they have to do with it? They had to eat the lamb. Okay, Christ is the lamb of God, our Passover lamb, who gives us the food for our journey through this life towards the paradise to come. You see, by knowing the images of the Old Testament, we're going to be able to see in the, in the mysteries taking place before us, not only nice symbolism, and isn't that cute that they dress them up in white garments, and isn't that nice that they light a candle, but all of a sudden the reality that we are enter, entering into the one mystery of God that is now being revealed before us. When we go through the baptismal font, we walk through the Red Sea with Israel, and we leave our old life behind in that water, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians being covered over, dying in the waters. 
and Israel comes forth to a new life. Okay? So you think about that next Easter. As you're looking at the mysteries of the church, as the things are taking place, it's not accidental. It's not accidental that the church is absolutely, totally dark. Yes, it is about the life of Christ. And yes, it is about the burial and death of Christ. But it's also about the darkness of Egypt and the darkness of creation before the light came forth. We as Christians live the mystery of God, the one mystery of God, as it is revealed over and over again throughout salvation history. Okay? Questions? No. Turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Pentecost. Leviticus chapter 23 is very helpful, and what you guys can do on your own is just read the whole chapter, because it gives um, the prescription for the, the major feasts, really. Chapter 23, verse 15, Melanie, and on. And you shall count from the... Oh, sorry. <laughs> and you shall count from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you have brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven full weeks shall they be. Okay, hold on. What's, what's the sheep of the wave offering? When does that take place? Passover is the first offering of the, of the wheat. Okay? So now you're going to count how many? Seven full weeks. Okay. Counting 50 days to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. 50 days. To what feast? Pentecost. Okay. 50 days. Pentecost. Okay, go ahead. Then you shall present a cereal offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven as fruit, first fruits to the Lord. Okay, notice what they're offering. Before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they offered, they went out and they took the first ripe, the first, um, you know, ripe heads of grain and offered them before the Lord. But now when the wheat harvest has come to full fruition, they bake loaves with it. Okay, they take as the fullness of the harvest is now brought in and they're presenting the prepared loaf now before God. Okay. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old without blemish, and one young bull and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their cereal offering and their drink offerings, an offering by fire, a pleasing odor to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It is a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Okay, so you get on, on the first application of it, that natural order. Okay, the wheat offering, the first harvest offering, or, well, the fullness of the harvest offering on that natural order. For the Jews, there was a further application of the feast. Okay, not just what's mentioned by God in Leviticus, but a further mystery that's fulfilled in the life of Egypt. Just as the, the uh, first offering of unleavened bread was fulfilled in the Passover of Exodus, 
So now the wheat harvest is going to be fulfilled in a further mystery of the life of Israel. Anybody know what that is? What event in the life of Israel are they going to apply this to? No guesses. Exodus chapter 19. They applied it to the giving of the law. When Moses and Israel got to Mount Sinai, we find out in chapter 19 of Exodus that it was on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai and when they set out for Rephidim and so on and so on and so on. The way they count the days, we don't have time to go into it today, but the way they count the days, they determined that it's 50 days from Passover okay, to the time when they got to Mount Sinai and Moses came down with the law. Okay, So not only do we have the wheat harvest of Pentecost, the gathering of the wheat of God's gift for Pentecost is an image, but what other images do we have? We have the whole of the giving of the law, okay, which indicates that we have to know what it was like for Israel to receive the law. And what was it like? What was their experience of receiving the law? What was the image? What image do you have in your mind? Come on, you've all seen the movie, right? <laughs> all right, lightning. What else? Fire. Remember, fire came down on top of the mountain. Okay. And what else? There was smoke, a cloud of smoke, all around the base of the mountain. What else? How about a mountain? How about the Lord coming down? Yeah, the Lord coming down. Okay, and giving them the the law. The law. Moses and his tablets. What's that? Moses and his tablets. Yeah, Moses and his tablets inscribed on stone. Okay, stone tablets. What about the gathering of the people? It says after three days, all of Israel gathered at the base of the mountain. And they were afraid because they saw the fire come down from heaven and the smoke surround the whole mountain. Okay? So you have all of these images coming in along with the wheat harvest, the harvesting of the giving of the things of God. Okay? Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Don't start reading yet. <clears throat> you guys there? You're having a hard time finding Jeremiah. Go back from like Ezekiel, go forward from Isaiah. You find Isaiah, go forward. You find the Psalms, go forward even more. Okay, we're getting there. 
All right, if you're not there, just listen. Um, Jennifer reads us chapter 31, verse 31, and forward. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that it waves... So that its waves roar. Okay, and so on and so on and so on. I'm sorry. So you have the whole application, this promise of what took place on Sinai is going to take place again. But how is it going to take place? Not on stone tablets, but on hearts. Yeah, on the tablets of our hearts. That all those things that took place on Mount Sinai are going to enter into man and they're going to take place in his heart. Okay? The Feast of Pentecost. Turn to John chapter 4. The Gospel of John. Fourth Gospel. Chapter 4. The story of the Samaritan woman. This is just after the Samaritan woman uh, believes in Christ. She runs back to the village to get her people. And the apostles appear again. And we pick up the story. Verse 31, chapter 4, verse 31 of John. Meanwhile, the disciples besought him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him food? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Mm. So all of a sudden we enter into the cycle of the harvest piece, right? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What's the harvest he's talking about? What's the harvest that Jesus sees? He says, look and see. The field is ready. What's that? Yeah, what souls? Literally, the Samaritans. Can you imagine that this woman comes, if you read the whole story, she goes and she gets the village and hauls the village out to meet Christ. And you can imagine him standing there with the apostles as the village of the Samaritans is cresting over the hills. And he says, look, the harvest is ready. Applying the symbol of the wheat harvest of Pentecost. But we always look to what What event? For, for the fulfillment of Pentecost, of the Jews. It's, well, the Pentecost of the Christians, right? Which takes place when? Yeah, in the upper room. And notice the symbols that take place in the story. Where is it taking place? Not just in the upper room, but on what mountain? Yeah, so it's on a mountain. 
What else is given? The law is written not on stone tablets, but in their hearts. The cloud symbolizing what? And the fire also symbolizing what? The Holy Spirit coming down and dwelling in man's hearts again. Okay? So you get the whole application not only of the Jewish symbolism, but also the application of the harvest. Now, not only of the wheat of the field, but who comes then to the Lord? But all the people. Remember, what, 3,000 were baptized that day. Am I right? 3,000. Okay? From all the nations. The great harvest of the Lord. Okay? Now, what sacrament do we usually... Remember what Cardinal Daniel says? He says, because we don't understand the symbols of the sacraments, we run into all sorts of problems. Well, what sacrament do we usually associate with this feast? Confirmation. Confirmation, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And confirmation makes somebody what? A soldier of Christ. An adult in the Lord. Really? Did it mean that for the Jews? Did it mean that for Christ? Or are we simply applying to the sacrament a theology which is based on the time of life that we give to the person? Because wait, we give them baptism as a child and then we wait till they're adults. They can make a decision for themselves. And therefore, they're becoming adults in the Lord, mature in Christ. There's an aspect of truth to that in the sense that, sure, when we receive the sacraments, we receive the grace of God into our souls, and we are matured in the life of God. But where's the Old Testament background in that theology? We've built a theology based upon really unfortunate historical circumstances. Historically, confirmation was given away. The the baptism. So where is it becoming a soldier of Christ's little baby and an adult in Christ? Confirmation is not a Christian bar mitzvah. Okay? It's not the time when I choose Christ for myself and show that I'm an adult. That time will come. But that's not what confirmation is all about. Yeah, Jennifer? When did the church do that change? Because I know when you're right, they do it all as an it started to change very early because uh, it was understood that the bishop, and there's this is a truth to this, that the bishop is very much the one who gives the gift of the Holy Spirit because it's the apostles who are the ones that received the Holy Spirit. And so you see even within Acts of the Apostles where you have someone being baptized and then later the apostle comes and confirms and gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's a distinction in the sacraments. And it really probably developed because the bishop just couldn't quite get around enough, right? And unfortunately, it's gotten divided. I think within our lifetime, we'll see it. It's already, there's talk in Rome about saying, hey, maybe we should start moving this back earlier, earlier. Okay, because what happens now is like in California, you wait till you're 18 and then enter your four-year program, right, to become confirmed. Of course, nobody gets confirmed. So, um, anyways, Edersheim. To us, the day of Pentecost is indeed the feast of first fruits, and that of giving of the better law, written not on tables of stone, but on the fleshly tables of the heart, with the spirit of the living God. For us, as the worshippers, for us as the worshippers, were in the temple. Worshippers, sorry, sorry. For for as the worshippers were in the temple, probably just as they were offering the wave lambs and the wave bread. 
The multitude heard the sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, which drew them to the house where the apostles were gathered, there to hear every man in his own language the wonderful works of God. And on that Pentecost day, from the harvest of the first fruits, not less than 3,000 souls added to the church were presented as a wave offering to the Lord. The cloven tongues of fire and the apostolic gifts of, of that day of first fruits have indeed long since disappeared, but the mighty rushing sound of the presence of the power of the Holy Ghost has gone forth into all the world. So when we watch, as somebody is confirmed, it just happened here yesterday in our church, and a bishop come and confirm the eighth graders. We watch not as a soldier is made for Christ. You know, there's aspects, and that's nice, and we can talk about that. But first and primarily, we have to talk about what happened that day on Sinai when Israel was called before the Lord. And what happened that day? The covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was declared between God and man. And when a covenant is declared, two become one. Israel became a sharer in the life of God himself. Okay? As the person comes forth from the baptismal font, he walks through the Red Sea. As he makes his way to confirmation, he comes to the foot of Mount Sinai, where the fire of God descends. And he stands at Mount Sinai like the apostles on Mount Zion. And receives the gift of the Holy Spirit to become united in covenant union with his Lord. Okay? <clears throat> Questions? Okay, we've got four minutes to do the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> we can do it. Uh, back to Leviticus, chapter 23. <clears throat> Twenty-three, verse thirty-three. And the Lord said to Moses, "Say to the people of Israel, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, it is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day, you shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. Seven days, you shall present offerings by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord." It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord offerings by fire, burnt offerings, and cereal offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Sabbath of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all of your votive offerings, and besides all of your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. Okay. Um, Alfred Eversheim, who's a, I've quoted him a number of times in here, he's a Christian, Jewish convert to Christianity, but he's Protestant. Okay, and he takes a fundamental, a different approach to the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, he says, we still look for the accomplishment of the one yet unfulfilled type, the Feast of Tabernacles, as the great harvest festival of the church. Okay? He goes on and he just repeats himself at the end of his chapter dealing with this. He says, the fact remains, nobody can argue that the Feast of Tabernacles is the one feast 
that remains unfulfilled, that we look to the future to fulfill. Okay? What did the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, what happened there? I'll read you from Father Brown's commentary on John. It says, The discourse at Tabernacles takes on added overtones if we are familiar with the ceremonies of this week-long feast celebrated in September or October at the fall festival in order to pray for early rain in the winter season. We might note these aspects of the feast. The people lived in huts or bowers to recall their ancestors' sojourn in the desert. To symbolize the need for rain, there was a daily procession from the pool of, of Siloam, bringing water as a libation to the temple. And the court of women in the temple was lighted by immense torches. So for seven days during the feast, the people built huts of, out of branches, leafy boughs, and they lived in those huts all through Jerusalem and all around Jerusalem. All the men had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, and they built these huts, and they lived outdoors during the festival. And each day they would take uh, these same branches, and they would wave them in the air and make a procession up to the altar of God with the branches in one hand and a piece of fruit, of citrus fruit, in the other. Okay, And make their way up to the altar. They would take water from the well at Siloam and carry it in a golden jar and pour it over the altar till it ran down the base of the altar. Okay, All the while chanting Psalm 118. So let's turn there real quick. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 19. Verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. You can imagine them waving the, the branches of palm and myrtle and walking into the altar, walking up to the altar. Verse 21. I thank thee that thou hast answered me and hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, or in the Hebrew, Hosanna. We beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech thee, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Imagine those big torches being lit up. They said that the torches were so huge, these huge golden torches, that from the court of the women, the entire city of Jerusalem was lit up for seven days straight. There was no darkness. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar, right? They came up to the altar and they bowed all of their branches toward the altar. You can see that this, that this psalm written by David was written in light of what they were doing. He was singing the hymn of what they were doing. 
Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I will extol thee. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This feast not only was a feast of the fruit harvest, but commemorated for the Jews the calling of Israel to build the tabernacle. Okay? That God would dwell in their midst. You can get that in uh, Exodus chapter 35, I believe, where Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and says to Israel that the Lord wants them to build a house that he may dwell in their midst. So you can see that's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Okay? God will come and dwell in the midst of Israel again. There was a further application, not just a memory of God dwelling in the midst of Israel, but it was further applied to the Messianic enthronement, or the enthronement of the king in Israel. This feast was used as the feast for the enthronement of the king. And you can see why. Blessed is he who enters in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, who comes in the name of the Lord but the king, the ruler? And you can imagine why he would choose this feast in particular as his royal feast. Because... All of the harvest has now been gathered in. And what better time? You wouldn't want to do it in the middle of winter time or at the end of the winter when everybody's getting a little hungry, right? This was the great joyous harvest feast of Israel. And so that was when the king was in all his splendor. Okay? However, with the Babylonian captivity, what event took place? What problem for Israel began? When Babylon came and wiped out Israel and took them off to other lands. Say it louder, I can't. What's that? Was the temple destroyed? Yeah, the temple was 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 destroyed. What else? They took the um, Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, what else? What else in relationship to what I was just saying about the king? Oh, they killed the king. Yeah, the king was taken off his throne, and for, from the Babylonian captivity onward, there was no king in Israel. So where do you think they started to point this feast to? Looking at celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles when? The restoration of the kingdom. Yeah, when the restoration of the kingdom would take place. And so the Feast of Tabernacles primarily became a feast of looking forward to the Messianic Age. You see that if you look at Zechariah real quick. Zechariah is just before the book of Maccabees. Or well, just before Malachi, but then there's Zechariah. we got to do this really fast because I'm over time. Zechariah, just before Maccabees, if you're not there, just listen. Verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. What fountain? What water pouring forth? That water, the water of Siloam that they poured on the altar. Okay? Verse 8. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. And so on. Verse 9. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. And he goes on in verse 16. Then, on that day, everyone that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the feast of booths. 
Okay? The Jews looked forward to the messianic day when the Lord would come and be made king. And when that day came, they, would, they believed that they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for all eternity. That all of the other feasts of the Jews would fall away. And they would enter into the dwelling house of the Lord, into the Garden of Eden, where the branches, the fruit branches, were their covering, where they carried the fruit of life in their hands. Okay? That's why poor Peter was so anxious to throw up those booths. Yeah, Peter goes up. If you look at in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when they go to Mount Tabor, remember when Peter says, should we build booths now? It was on, it says, on the eighth day. And it was just after Peter had declared Jesus to be the Christ, the King. And he goes up on the eighth day. There was only one feast that lasted eight days in Israel, and it was the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says, should we build the tabernacles now, Lord? Okay? You can also look in the Gospel of John, and our Lord goes up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and he says, I am the light of the world. Come and drink from me, and you will not thirst. The water flowing over the altar, the lights lit up in the court of the women. There's a whole background of the Feast of Tabernacles taking place there. But something even further. John chapter... I mean, see my notes. I think it's John chapter... Oh, please, Lord. John chapter 12. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 55. This is the last Passover that our Lord's going to go up to in Jerusalem, and we know what's going to happen. Now, the Passover of the Jews, verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And look to chapter 12, verse 12. As our Lord makes his way into Jerusalem, we know the scene well. The next day, a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They took the branches of the Feast of Tabernacles as he's making his way in, and they started waving them before him because they knew that if he was the Messiah that they were to begin to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they started chanting Psalm 118, where the Lord comes and dwells among His people again. Okay? But what is this? What feast day in the Christian... We'll finish with this. I'm told I'm way over. Okay, we'll finish. What feast day in the, in the Christian calendar is fulfilled by the Feast of Tabernacles? Remembering what? The fruit harvest. The dwelling of God with His people. Um, Corpus Christi. What's that? Um, Corpus Christi. Palm Sunday. Christmas. Christmas. See the problem? Um, There's no clear thing like Easter and Passover. Well, that's clear. Christ, Christ the King. Christ the King. What other guesses do we have? <laughs> Second coming. Oh, the second coming. So is Edershine, what's that? It's the Eucharist every Sunday. The Eucharist every Sunday. Who's right here? 
<laughs> I'm here to tell you you're all right. St. Gregory of Nyssa, in his Sermon on the Nativity on Christmas, says, The subject of today's feast is the true feast of tabernacles. Indeed, in this feast, the human tabernacle was built up by him who put on human nature because of us. Our tabernacles, which were struck down by death, are raised up again by him who built our dwelling from the beginning. Therefore, harmonizing our voices with that of David, let us also sing the psalm, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and so on. So as we prepare ourselves for the Feast of Christmas, we look back to the Feast of Tabernacles, and we take the signs of what was taking place there, how the Jews celebrated the Feast, and we'll begin to understand how the Church celebrates the Feast. In the Old Missal, I don't know about the New Missal, in the Old Missal, in the second Mass for Christmas, in the Gradual, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has shown upon us. This is the Lord's doing, and is wonderful in our eyes. All taken from Psalm 118. Think by accident? No. Okay? That's all right. I want to look at one last thing. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. As John looks into heaven and sees the liturgy taking place there. Revelation chapter 7. He sees before the altar. He sees the liturgy taking place and the lamb standing as though it's been slain. Chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude which no man could number from every nation, the final harvest of the Lord, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, and so forth. When John sees in the liturgy in heaven, he sees them celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Why the Feast of Tabernacles? Because it is the feast which brings about the unity of man and God, the return of man to paradise again. Okay? So, in conclusion, I gotta apologize to you guys. Because I really wanted to go through all the feasts and whatever, and our topic was way too broad. So here's what I want to do. Sometime maybe in the summer, after Easter's over, I want to have a series that's just called Feasts of Yahweh. Where we just go, forget New Testament fulfillment and all that. Just study the Old Testament feasts in themselves, kind of dry and practical. Because if we get that symbolism down, if we know what's going on in those texts... It'll be easy for us then in our lives to go and apply it as we see in the Christian liturgical year and in the works of Christ, their fulfillment. Okay? Well, I want to go through all of those feasts. But from what we learn in this, in this series, God is one. His desire for us is one. He doesn't desire an old covenant and a new covenant. He desires a covenant where man and God are joined together and man becomes a sharer in the life of God himself. That's what the Old Testament feasts were about. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices are about. 
And that's what Christ fulfilled when he came. And that is fulfilled in each one of our lives as we relive the life of Christ in the liturgical calendar. Okay? Let's conclude in prayer. Don't forget about Father Bruce's uh, weekend. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. John the Beloved, pray for us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.